welcome to another episode of Crashing the War Party. I'm here with Daniel Larison, my co-pilot in these crazy flights into the swamplands every week. It's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. And our reward is that you are out there listening and subscribing and passing along the good word every day. Today, we'll be talking to the great Colonel Doug McGregor, who is going to school us on the military's real motives in the South China Sea and with Taiwan. But first, let's check in with Afghanistan. You remember that country, don't you? It seems as soon as the headlines over the Taliban takeover and chaotic withdrawal subsided, the mainstream media went back to largely ignoring its existence. Of course, there have been plenty of retrospectives and stories today about the Taliban's crackdown on women and journalists and even the humanitarian crisis, but you have to sort of look for them. But as you know, Dan, the, the food crisis and the healthcare crisis they're getting worse. Estimates say some 98% of Afghans could be living under the poverty line by mid-2022. The healthcare system, including hospitals, are on the brink of collapse. I read one story where a rural family in Herat had made the decision to sell their baby girl to pay for food. There's about $800 million worth of World Bank funds that are currently frozen and another $9 billion in assets being held by the Federal Reserve in New York City. No decision has been made to release this money as it's all tied up in whether the US and other countries will recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government of Afghanistan and work with it to get that money to where it needs to go. It's a risky proposition, yes, but at this point, should we be still holding this money back? At what point, Dan, are we responsible for these crises reaching critical levels of death and societal collapse? Uh, well, I, I think we do have a responsibility since we have the control over these assets uh, to to use that control uh, responsibly and and in, in a way that that doesn't inflict massive suffering on the population. Uh, the, you know, there's an impulse. There's always an impulse in Washington to withhold resources from a country or to to shut off revenues from a country. Uh, with the aim being to pressure that government uh, into giving into our demands or, or ultimately even giving up power in some uh, cases. And, and the people that always pay for those decisions are the ordinary people uh, who have no connections, who have no means of uh, getting around these restrictions. And so it's, I think in this case, we, we really ought to be uh, releasing these assets to them and in recognition that they are the de facto government, that you know, there's not going to be another government controlling that territory anytime soon. And therefore, we should not condemn potentially millions of people to malnutrition and starvation uh, and, 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 of course, massive poverty uh, for the entire country uh, if we can prevent that. Uh, and I, I saw on Twitter uh, the former UN envoy to, uh, for Afghanistan uh, was commenting on this just uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, saying that U.S.-led opposition to releasing frozen Afghan financial resources simply does not make sense. Uh, first, the U.S. abandoned the country and handed it over to the Taliban, and now the Afghan people are punished with a lack of money to avoid a humanitarian disaster and an economic crisis. And, and I think that sums it up very well. Uh, we decided that staying in Afghanistan and keeping it essentially as a protectorate was not in our interest. Fair enough. And I, and I of course, I supported the withdrawal. But if that's going to be uh, our policy, then we cannot continue to punish Afghanistan economically or financially uh, because of the situation that we left after we uh, withdrew. So I, I think 
we, we have that responsibility and we can act to alleviate the situation. Uh, we, we don't have to uh, applaud the Taliban or approve of them or endorse them in any way, but we can, we can acknowledge the reality that they're going to be the ones in charge and starving the country of resources uh, is not uh, the right answer. It's certainly not the moral answer. And we ought to, uh, we ought to release those assets as soon as we can. Yeah, I mean, I don't see how we can play a greater role in helping Afghanistan rebuild if we don't open up uh, some channels, some serious channels of diplomacy with the Taliban. I'm sure there are currently some uh, negotiations or some talks, conversations happening uh, between the two countries. But if we do decide to help release these funds, these World Bank funds, which were already promised to Afghanistan and uh, the frozen assets, which already belong to people and, and entities, the bank there in Afghanistan, then that will open up uh, new channels of diplomacy because then we will have the leverage. We will be um, helping them uh, sensibly uh, to get that money to where it goes to. Maybe we can open up some sort of mission or consulate in the country, and that would give us uh, a better footing in which to hopefully have some influence over um, how that country rebuilds. I mean, ultimately, the Taliban will do what it wants to do. Um, they're a sovereign nation. We have to, at some point, recognize that. But um, holding all this money back and watching people starve, sell babies, um, not be able to deliver babies in, in hospitals, which is happening right now, and, and worse, um, you know, that's not going to give us any, any leverage, and it's not going to allow us to conduct the kind of diplomacy that, that the Biden administration promised would, ha would happen after the withdrawal. As you remember, he, meaning President uh, Biden, had uh, pledged that this wasn't the end. This was just the military ending of the era that we would continue to work with Afghanistan to help it, to help see it through um, the, the economic crisis and political crisis that it is going through where we could. And I don't know how we do that if we don't you know, start working with the Taliban um, despite all of our concerns about who they are. Right. And, and we also have some, there is some incentive in cooperating with them, at least uh, to a limited extent, uh, insofar as we believe that there is still some kind of security threat emanating from Afghanistan. Uh, the, the local authorities are the ones that you would end up, you would have to work with to counter that. Uh, and, and obviously there is still uh, ISIS activity uh, in Afghanistan. We saw that during the withdrawal and it's continued after the withdrawal was completed. Um, and, and we've seen uh, also reports that a lot of forces uh, that had belonged to the uh, old Afghan government have now gone over and joined with ISIS, right. uh, basically because they're the only operation uh, left to fight the Taliban uh, around. And so they, they have, you have these uh, strange bedfellows coming together uh, to, to form a new resistance. Um, I, I don't think the U.S. should be uh, interested in, in trying to, to back that resistance. There's been a lot of talk of trying to funnel weapons to to a new insurgency against the Taliban and to keep Afghanistan at war. Uh, clearly, we don't want to be doing that. Um, although the, the fact that you have some of these uh, former government forces now joining with ISIS creates 
a sort of absurd situation where we'll probably end up uh, attacking people that used to be on our payroll. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's all rather uh, absurd. Right. And what does this remind you of? Iraq. And we have the template for mistakes there that we could learn from. You know, we left Iraq militarily and pledged to remain partners with the government there. We pledged to uh, maintain our commitment to helping uh, them out of their crises. And what did we do? We had diplomats there in the green zone, but they were so heavily walled off from the rest of the country. And then, you know, Washington moved on. And so we never really put in the, the elbow grease and the actual investment uh, diplomatically to maintain the ties, uh, to maintain our influence there um, in a productive way. And what happened? Uh, all of our, all the former sons of Iraq, the Sunni fighters who helped us uh, extinguish Al-Qaeda at the time, uh, looked around and they had no jobs. Uh, they were being threatened uh, by the Shia-run government. Um, and a lot of them joined ISIS or other militias. And we ended up having to go back uh, in 2014 uh, to fight ISIS, which wasn't even a thing uh, when we first invaded Iraq in 2003. And so we're kind of staring at the same issue here in which you have these Afghan fighters and others who had worked with U.S. forces uh, as spies or whatever who are looking around and they're being threatened uh, by the Taliban and they're saying, huh, what, what do I do? And they're joining ISIS. And at some point, I know I can hear it calling, you know, are you, uh, an armed forces, uh, you know, or the you know, committee, you know, in the House or in, in the Senate are going to be saying, well, why aren't we fighting ISIS in Afghanistan? Our, our interests are being threatened. The, you know, terrorism is is rebounding in the region and we're going to have to go back, which I'm sure is, you know, would be a boon for for the military and the military industrial complex. Um, but it it just you know, lays waste to the whole idea that uh, we did anything for those people in the last 20 years if we have to go back there and start fighting terrorism again. And the thing to remember about uh, that fight is that while it provided security for people in some of the larger cities and in certain pockets of the country, uh, for the rest of the country, it meant uh, terror and death. Yeah. And, and so now in those rural parts of the country, uh, there's finally peace after 20 years. And there, there hasn't there. There are whole generations that are, have grown up uh, with knowing nothing but war that have finally experienced the first few months of peace in their lives, and and that's something that you know it, it's it's a measure of how pointless our policy was, how pointless the war was, that the lives of those people uh, have considerably improved since we left, and so we that that should give us real pause about. Uh, ever thinking about resuming uh, a new military engagement there? Yeah, I do think that there is a um, and there is a an amount of pressure on the Biden administration to step up its counterterrorism strategy in the region. I would like to see that counterbalance with uh, pressure uh, for him to up our diplomatic game in the region. And I think there's a lot we can be doing with our partners in the region, with other countries, including China and Russia, who have just as big, if not bigger, stake and securing that area 
of the world. And um, like we talked about releasing that aid um, and, and, and stop the collective punishment of people, which we've done all over the world. And now we seem to be doing it in Afghanistan. Welcome to the show this week, Douglas McGregor, retired U.S. Army colonel, government official, author, consultant, and television commentator. During the Trump administration, he was a nominee to serve as the U.S. ambassador to Germany. After the election of 2020, he was appointed to serve as senior advisor to the acting secretary of defense to help Trump follow through with his plans to extricate the U.S. from Afghanistan in the waning days of his presidency. A West Point graduate, McGregor's career spanned decades and several U.S. military interventions. In the first Persian Gulf War, McGregor commanded the U.S. 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment in the legendary Battle of 73 Easting, which cemented victory for the Americans against Saddam Hussein's forces. In years since, he became known as a brilliant military strategist against which conventional Washington often chafed. He published Breaking the Phalanx, which argued for radical reforms, challenging the status quo with detailed reform proposals for reorganization of the U.S. Army ground forces. His ideas were heralded by many in the Army, but not always those who, by those who actually had the power to do anything about them. He retired from the Army in 2004 and has been a tough critic of the post-9-11 wars and the military as an institution, particularly its leadership ever since. Welcome to the show, Colonel McGregor. Uh, thanks very much. Let me make one correction. I did not command the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. Oops. I led the 2nd Squadron at the time. That was 1,100 men. The regiment was about 5,000. So just want to make that modest correction in case anybody out there who yes, was with Yes, that is my fault. Remember that. No, no that's no, all right. No less heroic, though. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, that's you're nice more thing. heroic <laughs> All right. after the correction. Um, so welcome. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show uh, today. We're very happy to have you. Um, so let's get right into it. You know, you and I have been friends going back to the early days of the counterinsurgency in Iraq. I can't remember when we first met, but I, I remember uh, commiserating at one of these CNAS conferences uh, about all of the bloviating going on by the Washington establishment and, and blustering and and over the whole counterinsurgency phenom, um, I know you think the architects of COIN and the subsequent war policies in both Iraq and Afghanistan were wrong and squandered much of America's blood and treasure over the last 20 years. So what do you think when you hear many of those same voices calling for a national mobilization against China today? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind uh, the whole process of self-enrichment that occurred during the long uh, GWAT, Global War on Terror. Uh, that was a, a tremendous amount of money that was spent for nothing of, of significance or use, frankly, and ultimately made matters worse overseas for us. I, I think they, this is another turn in a new direction in an effort to simply keep the money flowing at current levels. And so China, which 20 years ago, even 10, 15 years ago, did not really evoke much of a response has now become the new Soviet threat that must be countered at all costs. And 
they mean all costs. All you have to do is look at the defense budget and the wasteful spending and a whole range of things that don't make any sense. So, you know, just to, to talk a little bit about the past, which I, I you know, because I, I know that Daniel would like to get into to more nitty gritty on, on China and, and Taiwan. Um, but in, in your, I mean, estimation, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about Afghanistan since you had been there, like you we'd said and before we got on this call, um, while in the Army, dealing with a lot of these so-called strategists um, at the Pentagon. How do you feel uh, they did with the ultimate withdrawal from Afghanistan? Now, there's been a, a lot of complaints about how that all went down. Well, it is quite stunning, the level of incompetence that characterized the disengagement from Afghanistan, so much so that I think it actually has worried our allies, who simply assumed that we were something that we probably have never been, which is this perfect military machine uh, compared with what they have. And when we say allies, that's kind of a misnomer. In most cases, we're dealing with military protectorates of the greater American military uh, empire. But nevertheless, they assumed that we were better than we are. And I think this gave the public a glimpse of just what a mess the US military has become. Uh, we have a, an enormous overhead of people, 43 four stars uh, for 1.18 million in uniform. During World War II, at the height of the war, we had 12.2 million men in uniform, and we had only seven four stars. And we seem to have done infinitely better during that war than we have ever since. So I think all the evils that people associate with failure in the private sector, frankly, now afflict the Department of Defense. Whether or not anything will be done, that's, a, that's an entirely different question, because the scramble for money seems to uh, outweigh any interest in doing what makes sense. And then I think the second part of your question is very important. We have never really had a national military strategy. You can argue that during the interwar years, we began to develop it so that by the late 1930s, the United States Army and Army Air Force had a strategy called hemispheric defense, which was predicated on the assumption that we did not want to be dragged into any wars, particularly not into another war with Germany. And it was a much more sober-minded view of the world, which saw Soviet communism as by far the greatest threat to Western civilization. All of this was ultimately overturned. We end up in the Second World War. We consign half the world to communism. And then we discover that we have a new problem, and that new problem becomes the Cold War, which is another enormous exercise in military spending. Now, at that point, it made some sense because of the kinds of people we were dealing with. But we have never really devised anything other than the containment strategy, which was highly militarized in the aftermath of the Cold War. What we have now is not a national military strategy of any kind. We just have spending strategies. How do we justify high levels of investment in defense? Well, you find enemies. Remember in 1992, 93, 94, the battle cry was, if NATO's not out of area doing things with us, well, then NATO's out of business. The possibility that perhaps NATO needed to go out of business was absolutely anathema as far as everyone in Washington was concerned because of all the investments in this NATO structure that justified, once again, enormous spending. So here we sit, and we're still stuck with the same problems, only now it's shifted to China. China is the new Soviet-style threat, and this has been made much easier, sadly, by China's behavior in business. And China has always been a ruthless business competitor. That's not new. 
And the interesting thing I point out to people is if you go to Japan or you go to Korea or Vietnam, you're not going to find any Chinese scientists or engineers working in any of their think tanks or at their universities. They won't let them near anything because they've been living next to China for thousands of years and they know what this behavior is all about. It has nothing to do with communism because communism doesn't exist in China anymore. But uh, this, this is the problem that we face. On the one hand, we, we decry the business practices, but we do nothing about it, frankly. And we turn our attention instead to massive investment in defense to supposedly counter this aggressive military threat from China, which doesn't exist. Let me just one one quick follow up on that. So if this is the, the way of the world that we um, go from one war uh, to another or war footing to another in order to justify budgets, um, tell me what bad can come out of that. I mean, at a certain level or a certain point, this continued push, 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 build up, build up, build up. At, is there a threshold in which that'll boomerang against us and that we'd actually have to go to war? Or can we maintain this war footing so that everybody's happy and fat and got their the money falling out of their pockets, but they don't actually have to go to war? Can, can they actually keep that balance? Well, you just described the four stars who would all like to have lots of money and not fight at all. And if they do have to fight, they'd like to go back to some what I call underdeveloped country with underdeveloped people, underdeveloped societies and underdeveloped weapons. I mean, that's the war of choice. You know, look at Iraq, look at Afghanistan, look at Syria. You're dealing with extremely weak opponents that allow us to, to bully uh, the enemy as we see fit with overwhelming firepower and all the advantages of intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and so forth. So I don't see much evidence that people in the building right now want to fight anybody. But the problem is that they are conveying the impression that we do. And that is somewhat dangerous. Now, the, the good news is that the Chinese, led by Premier Xi, and I'm sure Daniel will, will have something to say about this as well, has made it explicitly clear to his forces that under no circumstances are they to provoke us. In other words, whatever we do, they are supposed to exercise restraint. Uh, I think the Chinese leadership will go to enormous uh, lengths to try and avoid any sort of conflict with us, militarily speaking. And now, could we force it on them? Uh, we've had plenty of experience doing that sort of thing with the United States Navy in the 20th century. The Navy was always in the forefront of uh, provocative action. And we spent 40 years in the Department of the Navy trying to convince everyone that Japan had to be destroyed. And this started right after 1900. Now, we now have another lobby inside the Navy that sees China as a justification for a massive fleet, makes the same kind of argument. So, yes, that is a danger, but the danger is entirely us. Now, the next question is, well, what does the Biden White House want? I have no idea. Uh, you know, the, the Biden White House, to, to paraphrase Larry Summers, who talked about the Obama White House during the financial crisis, the lights are on, but nobody's home. So I, I don't know what they think. Uh, I think they want to continue to, as you say, bloviate, uh, exalt all of these uh, meaningless uh, phrases about spreading democracy and human rights and so forth and so on. But I don't see any evidence that they want to fight anybody. But they do have a Department of Defense that really isn't subordinated to the extent that it should be to the national command authorities. The Navy is pretty much on its own. The Air Force runs them a close second. 
and the army and the Marines are simply trying to find a reason to exist because there's nothing for them to fight. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a disaster, but they all have allies on the hill and the people on the hill are there to keep the money flowing. So there's no one who's looking at any of this rationally or objectively and prepared to do anything that makes sense, either strategically or with a force structure. Sure, I, I think that's right. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, speaking of the Biden White House, uh, there does seem to be a, a, a certain amount of confusion about what Biden's position is towards China. Uh, just recently, he made the error of saying that the U.S. has a commitment to defend Taiwan when we absolutely do not have that commitment. And then they, have, of course, had to do damage control to say, no, it, we don't actually mean what he said. Uh, but how, how provocative or how dangerous do you think those comments are? And, and do you think that they will give China uh, reason to assume the worst about our intentions? Well, I think the Chinese leadership measures what it might gain by what it might lose. In other words, when they look at something like Taiwan, they know that there are two major political parties on Taiwan. One is the old KMT, which was Chiang Kai-shek's party, which actually advocates for reunification with the mainland because they know China is no longer communist. And the KMT was frankly an old fascist party. So they're convinced that they can do business with Beijing. They're probably right. They're opposed by an alternative party, which is called nationalist from time to time, but in reality, it's the pro-Japan party, because this thing called Taiwan was formerly Formosa and lived under Japanese rule for decades, and quite frankly, were happy under Japanese rule. So for the Chinese, when they look at Taiwan, they, they look for certain indicators of danger. Remember, Taiwan was the unsinkable aircraft carrier, the permanent platform for the projection of imperial Japanese military power against China for decades. So they look for the possibility that either we or the Japanese would seek to establish real military facilities on the island and use it against them. They will not tolerate that. Now, we've had some special, the supposedly special ops from the Marine Corps working there, maybe some SEALs. I don't know. I think it's ill-advised. But that's not the sort of thing that the Chinese are going to worry about. They're, they're not concerned about little light units. They're not concerned about the possibility that they may train some nationalist Chinese forces. They're looking for the presence, as we did in the 1960s in Cuba, for missiles, aircraft, uh, weapons of mass destruction, in their judgment, which don't have to be nuclear, obviously. And then the projection of that power ashore, the buildup of forces and so forth. If that happens, you'll get a, an attack from China. It, it will act in its own best interest, which is self-defense. But barring that, no. There's not going to be a war over Taiwan. And I think it's important to go back to Taiwan and listen to the people on the island. One of the senior generals in the nationalist force there on Taiwan said, there is no danger of attack from China. We should stop talking about it. And they're not, every time we send a battle group from the U.S. Navy through the Taiwan Straits, the, the Taiwan military says, for God's sakes, do you have to do this? Every time you do it, we have a problem. There's another crisis we don't need. The Chinese are offended. So I think we're the problem right now that otherwise wouldn't exist. And then finally, <clears throat> Japan and China have tried to bury the hatchet forever. The Japanese realized that invading China was a disaster, just as you know the, the German invasion of the Soviet Union, a complete waste of time, nothing to be gained by it. 
there's this thing called RECEP, the Regional Economic Cooperation uh, System or model program that has been developed by China. Japan has joined it. And China is joining Japan. They want to do business. For the first time in the history of relations between Japan and China, Chinese markets are open to Japan. This is very important because most of the wars they fought have been over access to the markets. Because if you wanted access to China's markets, you had to pay tribute to China, to the emperor. The Japanese would never do that. They refused to subordinate themselves under any circumstances. Xi has said that's over. That's not necessary. They can export agricultural products into China. And right now, given the economic circumstances in China, the Chinese leadership is very concerned about their access to capital. And they see Japan as another place where they can get it as opposed to us. So there is, there's not going to be a war between Japan and China, which the Japanese are happy to let us bloviate about because they're happy to let us spend money to defend them, but they know it's not going to happen. They're waiting for us to leave, much as the South Koreans are waiting for us to leave. No one in the region believes in this aggressive Chinese military threat. This is entirely fabricated by us. Well, and I, I'm afraid that that's what it, I mean. It certainly looks like that to me, um, and it, you see that with this constant agitation now uh, for an explicit security guarantee to Taiwan, uh, which I, I think it, it might not be as provocative as putting missiles is there, but it would certainly uh, send a, a very hostile signal uh, to Beijing. Uh, well, what do you think beyond the, this quest for enrichment uh, that you were talking about? What what do you think is driving that uh, argument for? so-called strategic clarity? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I suspect it's a combination of things. On the one hand, you have an administration that, like every left-wing administration, wants to demonstrate that it is somehow or another strong. In other words, we're strong on defense. And you have ideologues now, serious ideologues, that believe in what I would call this uh, sort of a Marxist theory of universal democracy that has to be forcibly imposed either through subversion in the form of color, color revolutions or directly. I think they're part of it. They don't know what they're talking about. That is dangerous. And it's getting us into trouble right now, not just in Northeast Asia with the Chinese and others, but also right now in Eastern Europe with Russia. And uh, I don't think the Turks are far behind. And the Iranians are certainly worried about the same sort of thing. But is it meaningful enough in the, in the judgment of Beijing to justify military action against us? And the answer is no, it isn't. Th these are very substantive people. And remember that China's preeminent interest is business and, and enriching itself. It sees its power in the world as evidenced by economic success and the accumulation of great wealth. This is not a, a people that want to invade anywhere. Uh, Xi has enough trouble just managing the 1.4 billion inside his own country. And he's fighting a war against corruption on a scale that we can't even begin to imagine. Uh, very recently, he executed the man responsible for shipbuilding in all of the shipyards in China for corruption. He's got a huge problem with morale inside the Chinese Navy, the PLA Navy, because China is not a maritime country. People are miserable. They don't want to go to sea for long periods. They're, they have all sorts of problems technologically with the quality of the ships they build and the submarines. So this is these are things that the American people are not told. I read something very recently by Gordon Chang 
saying, oh, the Chinese have thousands of satellites and we're about to be destroyed in space by them. Well, that's nonsense. We have more satellites in space than anybody else on the planet. And we have enough that we can rapidly replenish if we need to do it. In other words, we have redundancy up there. But these sorts of hype, this hype is unending, especially inside the military, because I think people are desperate to keep the money flowing, especially in the aerospace and shipbuilding communities. To the point where, for instance, the United States Army is experimenting with and wants to acquire hypersonic missiles. Why in the hell would the United States Army need hypersonic missiles? Who's in charge? No one is in charge. And Congress likes that. Congress likes dealing directly with the services. It's part of mining for gold. Let each service build its independent mousetrap. You know, we don't care whether or not it works. We don't care if it's efficient. We don't care if it's effective, but it keeps the money flowing. So I don't see any end in sight other than potential bankruptcy, which I think is closer now than it has ever been in our history. Uh, certainly not since 32, 34 in the depression. But otherwise, no, I don't see any evidence that this will stop and that we will suddenly develop a strategy for the use of our national power, not just military power, that makes sense. But you don't have any confidence that the the, the much-awaited Biden's uh, national security policy or strategy, which would indicate some sort of, you know, force posture you know, uh, positioning, you don't have any confidence that that's actually going to clarify any of this for us and, and, and in a good way. No. Look, it took President Trump about almost three years to figure out that what he was dealing with. I mean, he, he got inklings along the way. After all, the man was a, a real estate a tycoon from New York City, which had, and he harbored all sorts of illusions about what was real or wasn't real in Washington. He discovered this, he broke the code, but it was far too late to do anything about it. So what he began to say was, well, why are we still in Japan? It's 75 years after the Second World War, 70 years after the outbreak of the Korean War. Why are we in these places? Why are we still all over Eastern Europe? Uh, and why are we in Western Europe? And, and why are we, why are we, why are we? And he would draw these, oh, well, you have to understand that uh, we have global responsibilities. And he would answer, well, we have responsibilities to the United States and the American people and their economic prosperity and their defense. But how does this contribute to our defense or economic prosperity? Remember his famous words, what do we get out of it? Well, the answer was nothing. But he eventually discovered that the answer was, well, we get 43 four stars. We get hundreds of generals. We get thousands of senior executive service billets for the civilians. We enrich massive numbers of people in the top 1% who are heavily invested in the defense industries and in and in that sector that's, that feeds the military uh, power. He figured that out, but it was too late. So the next, the next crowd that comes in, I think will probably confront economic ruin and they'll probably have to start over from scratch. That could be a good thing, but you can't bring back anybody who's there now. And you certainly don't no. want anybody who was there on the last administration under Trump because Donald Trump was, you know, I, I frequently say, that, what do you think about the Trump administration? I said, well, there was no Trump administration. They said, what do you mean? I said, there was only Donald Trump. There was no administration. The administration was an extension of the old Bush swamp or Obama swamp or whatever swamp you want to call it. That's our problem now. Yeah. All, uh, 
all Biden did was bring back the usual suspects. And, and they, they know which side their bread is buttered on. Dave Petraeus is going to stand up or H.R. McMaster. And these people say, well, you know, we're wasting money. We don't need all these headquarters. Have you ever heard them say that? Of course not. <laughs> we need to be everywhere doing everything all the time. By the way, here's my account number. Send me a check in the mail. And they get the checks. They're all well subsidized. So is Bolton, all of these people, because they're advocates for the status quo, which is destructive, pointless, and as Daniel pointed out, mm -hmm. potentially dangerous under the under the wrong circumstances. But we have had good fortune thus far. We have Xi in Beijing and the evil Putin in Moscow, neither of whom want a war with us and will go to great lengths to avoid it. Thank God. Well, on that bright note, I think we've run out of time, but I really appreciate all of your insights as always and hope that you'll come back on the show. We, there are a lot of things that we didn't, weren't able to get to today, but thank you for giving us some, some of your precious time. Okay, thanks, Kelly, and thank you, Daniel. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>